Today on Peace Talks Radio, how best to challenge hate speech in the streets and understand those who are drawn to those divisive ideologies. Look at the thousands that are being nonviolent. The thousands are saying we won't stand for hate. They should be getting as much press as the KKK does. A violent response to these kind of demonstrations of hate will only inflame the situation, and the media loves that. Whereas active, engaged nonviolence, we know statistically now, works. And I've seen this at a lot of these rallies. Yeah, the neo-Nazi ones, they're all neo-Nazis. But the other ones have people who will talk to you. And engagement does a lot more than busting a skull. Dr. Brian Levin, John Deere, and Tanya Covington on the program today, as well as Frank Meek. He wrote the book, The Autobiography of a Recovering Skinhead. That's today on Peace Talks Radio, a series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution strategies. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Periodically in recent years, there has appeared to be a resurgence of activity in the U.S. by white supremacist groups, the Ku Klux Klan and neo-Nazis. Marching openly in U.S. cities, often defending their right to assemble and spout hate speech as constitutionally protected freedom of speech. As the marches and gatherings occasionally become more frequent, tensions have risen. Counter-protesters appear on the streets to stand against the divisive ideologies. Some of them are provoked to act aggressively, and skirmishes have resulted. Fractions of both groups have chosen violence. One of the high-profile confrontations was, of course, in Charlottesville, Virginia in the summer of 2017, and there have been others since then. It's all sparked a debate about appropriate and effective ways to demonstrate peacefully to counter hate speech and extreme ideologies. The one core riddle seems to have been whether people of good conscience and compassion should not even show up to white supremacist rallies and just ignore the hate speech, or whether they should show up and engage in comedic put-downs of the extremist groups, or show up and actively outshout and outnumber them, or should they be even more aggressive in confronting the hate speech purveyors, as the groups that came to be known as Antifa for anti-fascist tried in chasing and harassing the white power groups. We're going to offer our own conversation on this topic today. Our guests are social activist and author John Deere, a Jesuit priest who's written extensively on Gandhi, as well as books like Living Peace, Peace Behind Bars, and A Persistent Peace. Also, Tanya Covington, the Director of Conflict Resolution at Outcomes Incorporated in Albuquerque, New Mexico. She's a trained mediator and has taught mediation for 27 years. She has expertise in workplace and cross-cultural conflict. Also, Brian Levin, who's a professor of criminal justice and the director of the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University at San Bernardino. He's a court-certified expert on extremism in both the U.S. and the U.K., and he's testified before both houses of Congress. Uh, Brian, would, would you agree that, that things have been looking a bit different in recent years than in the past? Yes, uh, but it, you know, it's, it's not everything you might think. Uh, on the one hand, we've seen um, a rise in hate homicides. We've seen that, but we've also seen more uh, major demonstrations, what I call mega rallies, of white supremacists and white nationalists. ADL did a really nice table on it. The 2017 Charlottesville gathering and terror attack, that was the largest 
gathering of white nationalists and supremacists in decades. So we're seeing that. Interestingly enough, we confirmed in our research a significant rise in election time hate crime that is reported to police, um, but it wasn't everywhere. Sig- significant rises in Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, Boston, New York City. Well, you sent me a list of nearly 30 confrontational public demonstrations in 2016 and 2017. Uh, about half uh, were related to candidate or President Trump appearances. But I was very struck by this video that I saw online of one that you attended in February of 2016. And I may insert some audio clips from it later. But I want you to tell the story. You're going out to observe what was a pretty small, apparently, white power march in Anaheim. And you wound up taking an active role in protecting a white supremacy grand dragon with Confederate flag and KKK badges on his uniform-style shirt when black men from the neighborhood were, uh, where they were marching started beating on him. I would get out of here, sir. No, 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 no. Don't, don't hurt, don't hurt anybody, sir. Is that what Dr. King was about, sir? We don't need to hurt anybody here. First of all, what was your purpose being there to observe and photograph for your research? Do you go to these often to look? Well, that's why I was there. This was a significant emboldenment of the Klan, and I go to these rallies to conduct. Uh, research, how many people show up, Uh, what does their leadership look like, how many members do they say they have, Uh, what is on their agenda for future events, and what is their guiding current contemporary philosophy. Um, And I also like to uh, photograph and video. But before these Klansmen could even all get out of the SUV, they came under attack uh, by an offshoot of, a, of an otherwise curious and peaceful mob uh, and attacked three clans member, clan members brutally, an elderly clansman and the Grand Dragon. The Grand Dragon fell to the ground. There was no uniformed police presence. Folks who had wooden planks and metal rods were approaching him, and big folks were kicking him in the head as he crouched onto the ground. I went over there. The photographs show that I put myself over him, and then um, we got him up and tried to put, you know, keep him walking. But he was still accosted and assaulted as we as we kept him walking. It wasn't until police sirens came that it that it ended. And they and, and folks were coming back to to smash us. You can see in the video with these wooden planks. Now, what was motivating you at that moment? I heard you shout at one point, this is not what Dr. King had in mind. It, it wasn't. Um, and I've seen this before. There, there was a Klan incident uh, that was a little bit more contained because there were no weapons. People had to go through metal detectors. But where an elderly Klansman was being beaten in Ohio in 98. Um, but the bottom line is, I thought they were going to kill somebody. Um, so that was my... Uh, my initial response, I'm former NYPD, and um, we're not going to have anybody killed here. Uh, Then I was kind of indignant that folks would think that they could use violence to shut viewpoints down, regardless of how loathsome they are. You have to protect viewpoints 
particularly when they're loathsome, if we're going to have a, a vibrant protection of expression. Because I'll tell you something. It'll start with a mob and it'll end with the government. And we need to have a, a vigorous protection of free speech. But that was not my initial <laughs> that was not my initial motivation. My initial motivation was to stop someone who's being set upon by an increasingly big set of people um, who are armed with uh, uh, with improvised weapons. Mm -hmm. All right, well, let me bring some of our other guests in. Tanya Covington, uh, as you're listening to this particular story and thinking about the uh, recent years and this free speech, hate speech conundrum, what, what comes to mind for you? I feel like it's one of those things that you can look at from a lot of different viewpoints. It's interesting that people are always... Uh, um, and the alt-right are talking about um, making America great or taking my country back. I hear a lot of people talk about that. And yet one of the things that happens is a white supremacist group shows up at a place where they know they're not wanted. And I can understand a little bit of people feeling like, you know what, this is the only piece of land we have left. This is our neighborhood. We have to protect it. We can't let you be here. We can't stand by silently and let you let you come in or it looks like you're taking over. After seeing and being involved with things for a, a very long time, there's a tiredness and you get tired of turning the other cheek, um, especially um, over and over again when you don't necessarily see that that, that, that works. I also feel like in the comparison between what's going on now and going on when when Dr. King was here, when Dr. King was here, they were turning hoses on on um, protesters. Now they're shooting them with bullets. So um, I feel like there's a little bit different time. I mean, yes, I, I still believe in nonviolence. If I had my way every time the Klan or, or um, white supremacists show up, nobody would be there. I would like them to march down the street and have every single person close their windows and just totally ignore them so mm -hmm. that they know that their message is not getting out. That's been a controversial suggestion, even that alone, whether to show up or whether to you know, let them scream into the wind, as some have said. Uh, John Deere, you know, you've uh, researched, written about Gandhi and Jesus and King. And what's your take on that? Show up or not? We can't be passive and sit back in the face of this horrendous, sick culture of violence and war that's threatening the whole planet. These are strategic questions, mm -hmm. and they apply to local specific situations. And that's where nonviolence gets infinitely creative. And that's my main thing is as long as good people are planning a response to do what you're saying, Tanya, it would be really hard to do. And really, uh, then that, that's good. As long as you're doing something and the, the whole town knows about it. August 2017, how many hundreds marched, the Klan marched in Boston, but 50,000 people came out. And mm -hmm. that was pretty darn impressive. And I think that that worked pretty well to, to send a strong message. But uh, what I'm thinking about is that all of this is normal. It's to be expected. We live in a very sick country that's decades and decades of killing people around the world, serving the corporations, 
fueling racism and hatred and sexism, continuing to build nuclear weapons, threaten them, uh, destroying the environment. So I am really not talking about one issue anymore. For me, it's the whole culture of violence, that they're all connected, and that it needs to be a whole new vision of nonviolence toward a culture of, of nonviolence. And movement building is the only answer. It's the only solution because it's going to get worse. Uh, well, so I, I, I th really see them all connected, and this is a normal progression, and I think we all need to step back and go, folks, this is the way it's been coming, that Trump is a symbol of our violence, mm -hmm. things like that. Well, and I, I appreciate that that it's movement building. I think for the purposes of this program then, uh, you know, I do want to, you started with the point of saying that movements then have to be local, they have to be creative, and they have to be coordinated to be successful, quote unquote, or effective, quote unquote. So that's what I'm kind of interested in trying to explore because I've been reading articles about, you know, how to make fun of Nazis. What's effective? What could work? to uh, to bring about uh, any kind of change or understanding about this. Brian, since you've seen so many of them and maybe are following this conversation as well, uh, w what are you hearing? Well, you know, for my friends who are Christian, uh, Jesus was betrayed by one of his own, right? So when you see people who are going against white nationalists and Nazis, the most loathsome people around. I want you to consider a couple of things. Number one, I know people who are former Nazis who have repudiated their prejudice and are now, and are now making the world a better place. Later in the program, we're going to hear from a, a former white supremacist who made that transition, as you just described. And we'll listen to that later. But go ahead, Brian, your second point. My second point is not a utilitarian one. My second point is that if your movement embraces violence in any way that significantly changes what our highest traditions are with the use of violence, which is to eschew it, except in the most urgent of circumstances and with some kind of judicial approval or review, um, you're killing the moral legitimacy of any cause that you're associated with. And I want to be clear here. We can talk all about white nationalists. They're terrible. I've studied them for years. But your audience is a, is a sophisticated one. And there, there is a splintered group of people who are not part of the progressive movement that's wearing hats and undertaking loud and very clear protests. These are folks who are against our system of government. They're either anarchists or people that think our form of government is so infected that it is illegitimate. And their most street-worthy presentation of that is their belief that the First Amendment is a tool of tyranny against oppressed people. Not that we should have protection for viewpoints that we don't like, which means, by the way, that we can leave them on the shelf as well. Violence doesn't accomplish any of the ends that a reasonable and competent person who is against bigotry would undertake. 
Well, I can tell you when I was watching the Charlottesville 2017 event that I was thinking that uh, some of the counter-protesters got into skirmishes with the white supremacy marchers were overlooking key components of effective nonviolent protest. Uh, Freedom marchers and lunch counter-protesters of the 60s were trained to take the abuse and, and the violence without resisting. They were taught not to intervene when fellow protesters were being savagely beaten. Same message from Gandhi, right, John Deere? I mean, essentially. Right. And so I agree with Brian. Um, violence doesn't work. And violence in response to violence always leads to further violence. It's not going to transform anybody. And we need to change all these people. We all need to change. And everybody's redeemable. But uh, a violent response to these kind of uh, demonstrations of, of hate uh, will only in- inflame the situation. And the media loves that. Whereas active, engaged nonviolence, we know statistically now, works. And that's what is not also being reported. The studies coming out, we've never had it before in, in history. And the greatest example is Dr. Erica Chenoweth, mm-hmm. Why Civil Resistance Works. She's been on our program. Yeah, yeah she's studied mm-hmm. every violence situation in the world in the last 106 years and has proven that nonviolent response uh, and that works to end a war nonviolently is much more powerful and effective and leads to more nonviolent social democratic societies. So you apply that in our personal lives, in these protests against the Klan, and all the other wars in the world. This is our, Dr. King is still right. Nonviolence is our only hope. It's our only, it's a methodology for social change that works to transform everyone nonviolently. It uses nonviolent means for nonviolent ends. But you've got to train people, yeah. and you've got to teach people, and you've got to fund it, and they're spending a trillion dollars on educating violence. We're all brainwashed in violence. And how could people who are losing their power, white, ignorant people, you know, who have put their identity in that, they don't know anything but violence. And, you know, so our responsibility is we all have to be involved in the movement. We have to change this country to fund the education of nonviolent conflict resolution for every human being on the, on the planet, really. And, uh, and to institutionalize nonviolent conflict resolution in every city, mm-hmm. in every country, between all the countries. This is if we're going to survive. Yeah. Well, obviously, that's kind of our point with the radio program, too. But And I do want to talk to the people who are just listening now who may or may not be lucky enough to run into that kind of training sometime. This may be the only training they get, what they're hearing us say today. So, you know, I want to talk specifically to them, and you mentioned the media. Okay, let me just use that as an example. Sometime after the Charlottesville, I guess it was, again, still August 2017, I'm watching uh, Trump's speech in Arizona, and I'm watching what was apparently peaceful protests that all of a sudden got busted up by a couple people throwing a water bottle, and the Arizona police start firing tear gas. That's what's on TV. So what do we say to, Tanya, I'll direct this to you, to um, people uh, anywhere on the um, sympathies spectrum or the political spectrum watching that, how do they process what John started to suggest about what media shows and what they need to show against what is real? What questions should they be asking? What further information should they be getting to counteract those powerful pictures. I think um, I certainly uh, agree with with John that we have to work on changing society. 
And I think that one of the ways, and I know this is difficult for an awful lot of people, is to stop playing to the media. You know, there's a uh, old media saying, if it bleeds, it leads. And whatever is the most violent or the most disruptive is what they're going to put on TV. And yet one of the things that we know and that we need to be talking more about and that I'm really grateful that we're um, seeing it in uh, social media is the hundreds of other marches that are going on that are peaceful. The times when thousands of people show up to talk about something or, or to have a peaceful march. Those don't make the media but they're making they're making social media and i feel like we need to be demanding of the media that that gets as much press or more as the violence so that um that's how you begin to change society is when you show that you know what mm-hmm. yeah there's a few you know people out there being violent but look at the thousands yeah. you know that are being nonviolent the thousands are saying we won't stand for hate they should be getting as much press um, or more um, as the the KKK does this is interesting because as I was watching that Arizona event in August of 2017 I was watching the protesters and I was getting I'm a little cynical about cell phones to begin mm-hmm. with and, uh, and and computer and information technologies but you know I was watching them and it seemed like they were all texting and you know and I said this doesn't look like the 1960s protests where everybody was you know raising a hand or or holding a placard or something or just being in the moment and very engaged but as you're describing this it strikes me as that to some degree and of course they might be sending cat videos or they might be <laughs> texting with their daughters or something but they also might be you know, reporting essentially on the yes. event too, and I I feel like that's that's so um, that that really is important because there are things going on that we don't know about. Um, I was lucky to have a number of of people um, who were at the Boston 2017 event. I was was still in Albuquerque. I couldn't be in Boston. But it was wonderful to be able to get pictures from people who were on the ground Mm -hmm. saying, look at what is going on. Look at how many people are here um, on the other side, on the the positive side. Mm -hmm. And I feel like whether that gets reported or not on television, I know what happened because there were people there who sent out those pictures. Activist John Deere, extremism researcher Brian Levin, and also comments from a former white supremacist who changed his ways. All when Peace Talks Radio continues in one minute.
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Online with all of the episodes in our series going back to 2002 at peacetalksradio.com. And we're grateful to more than 50 public radio outlets that take our show to listeners in 24 states. Today we're talking about hate speech rallies and how as a society we are to address the preeminent value of free speech when some of the free speech that small groups want to practice amounts to intolerant, hurtful hate speech. Our panel today includes a diversity expert and mediator, Tanya Covington, a longtime activist and author, John Deere, and Professor Brian Levin, who runs the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University in San Bernardino, who only has a few more minutes with us from his office. So, Brian, what closing thoughts for you based on what you've heard so far from our panel? Your heroes are in your community now. They're sitting at your table. Um, if communities can get involved with the institutions of the places that they live and routinize meaningful contact, uh, when I was at the Justice Department back in June, you know, we talked about having the U.S. attorney or the, or the head of the FBI or, or, or mayor's offices convene human relations councils, human relations commissions, because they know what's going on in the community. Uh, you, you don't want a top-down response. So my, uh, my storied expertise is very simple, and that is, yes, have people who know how to do a model police policy come in, or who know how to handle big conflictual demonstrations. But communities know uh, their own heartbeat, and they will tell you what kind of approach works best. But you have to have a framework where the community is actually, even in, in, in limited ways, uh, engaged. That doesn't mean you should accept out-and-out bigotry. But I think, particularly for progressives, and I've seen this at a lot of these rallies, yeah, the neo-Nazi ones, they're all neo-Nazis. But the other ones have people who will talk to you. And engagement does a lot more than busting a skull. Brian Levin is professor of criminal justice and director of the Center for Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University at San Bernardino. Thanks for cutting out some time for us today, Brian. Thank you so much for having me with these wonderful guests. Uh, John Deere, you wanted to say something. When, uh, the group that I work with is called Campaign Nonviolence, and we organize demonstrations across the country against everything, Tanya. <laughs> Racism, <laughs> poverty, uh, war, nuclear weapons, environmental destruction, and for Dr. King's vision of a new culture of nonviolence. But uh, two years ago, we launched another project, which is in line with what Brian was saying, called the Nonviolent Cities Project. And I think one of the key problems is the lack of vision. And um, I was speaking in Carbondale, Illinois, a couple of years ago. And after many decades, the activists kind of said, we're not getting anywhere. So they launched what they called Nonviolent Carbondale. And instead of having activists just meeting, they started to meet at the city council meetings. Well, it's taken off. And their idea is the vision is where do we, where do we want Carbondale in 50 years? No more racism, no more killings, no more poverty. No more destruction of the environment. No more military base. No more guns. Well, they've gone to every sector of the community, the school system, the police, the city council, all the religious leaders, the health care, 
and they're working on that. So we've taken that to the whole country, and we have 50 different cities that are quietly organizing on this, some in big ways and some in small ways. Everyone can work, take up this idea of a vision of your local community becoming a community of nonviolence. And I think that is one of, it's one of the most positive things I've heard about. Because then you're addressing racism, but it has to also address the handguns. Yes. And it has to address the police brutality and the prisons. But then the greed. And then the schools got no funds to educate the kids. And then the health care. And what about the military barracks down the, where all the money is going? Mm-hmm. Or the environmental racism and the destruction of the environment right there. And you start to really have a holistic view. I'm kind of excited about that. And that gives me hope. That's what I, I want to share that. I think that's wonderful because I feel like that will make more of a difference if you start locally. And if everybody is doing is doing that and they're working on the things that are affecting their particular community. I feel like that's how you make systemic change. Well, one of the problems that we learned from Carbondale, we've been really is mm-hmm. that everybody we as activists and organizers have to get outside our own box. Yes. You've got to start meeting with the police and meeting with the city council and gosh. So not yes. so much saying this is this is my issue, but these are not my issues. Or mm-hmm. I'm willing to spend time on this particular piece of it, like education. Or yes. but you you sort of have to multitask. And, and, it's I, a and vision, I feel like every vision, yeah, and everybody has something that they're that they specialize in. But I feel like if I'm really good at this and you're really good at that. We need to join forces, um, and I'll support you in what you're doing, and you support me in what we're doing, and then together um, we're able to get a a whole lot more done, and we're able to do that um, in a very big-picture systemic type of way. That's uh, mediator and diversity trainer Tanya Covington. We also have social activist and author Father John Deere on the panel with us. We had been talking with Brian Levin a moment ago. I'm Paul Ingalls. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution strategies. And here on Peace Talks Radio, we're always interested in, at least I am, (laughs) an upstream approach to problem solving. So I pose this question. Uh, When I looked at the faces of the mostly young white men marching with the neo-Nazi groups as gathered in Charlottesville in 2017 or these other rallies, Personally, I want to know each of their stories to know what led them to join these movements. And I wonder what was missing from their upbringing or maybe what was present in their upbringing that steered them to that march. So before we move on, I want to introduce the story of Frank Mink, who we interviewed on our program back in 2010. Now, he was drawn into white hate groups as a teen went to prison for some of his hate-based activities. He had a change of heart over time when he had normalizing encounters with Jews and blacks as a young adult. And then he wrote a book called The Autobiography of a Recovering Skinhead. Now he lectures on compassion and tolerance. Here's a first excerpt from that interview done by KUNM's Elaine Baumgartel. Can you tell me about the first day that you joined a Nazi skinhead group? Well, I've been hanging around them. up in the Lancaster, Pennsylvania area. And one of them was my cousin. And later on that night, we were after we were all hanging out, one of the older skinheads asked me, when, when was I going to shave my head? And I said, I would do it now. Uh, I was totally intrigued by them, and, and I liked hanging with them. I was 14. What was intriguing? Just, you know, I just come from a really tough background. Uh, you know, stepfather that was kind of abusive mentally and physically. 
and then I moved to my father's, which was in an all-black section of Philadelphia, and, you know, just a lot of fights, a lot of trouble. So that summer, it was just, I mean, you couldn't have put a perfect kid in the perfect spot to do this. So um, that's what kind of, I like the protection. I like the part of people were feared them, and I've been living in fear for the last four or five years of my life. So, so per, in a sense, you had access to some some power and some safety that you hadn't had before. Right. And and also that I mean they were political and even though I was 14 I kind of was in the war and politics and you know what is communism what is this you know I just was into that stuff and here this is a group that fed me both things. So how did your membership and participation once you kind of officially became a member of the group how did that make you feel about yourself and your place in society? Oh, it gave me complete purpose. And then as I started going to Bible studies that were teaching us how to hate through the Bible, now I'm not only have a purpose, but I have a God-given purpose. I really believe that. So, um, and, and that's when I started to recruit more kids into it. And, you know, and recruiting wasn't like I was anointed a recruiter. I just was always good at getting people into what I was doing, no matter what it was. Even when I was a little kid, if I was getting a new hockey team together or whatever it may be, I was always get a, good at getting people into what I was doing. So when your racial consciousness started to change when you were incarcerated, did it change subtly over time or was there like a eureka moment? No, no, not at first. There was a, it was a long time because even in prison, when I was leaving prison, I was still a skinhead. I was still an Aryan Nations, white Aryan resistance member. And I thought I was still was going to be for life. The friends that I was making in prison, that that was just prison. I, you know, I'm going to get out and things are going to go back to normal. So um, so it was, I later on came to terms uh, with the black thing, the white thing, the Latino and the Asian. Like I kind of come to that conclusion that we were all equal, but I still wanted to hold on to this one last hatred. And that was for the Jews. Like I just, because I didn't know any Jews. I'd never met any. So the easiest thing to do is you hate what you don't understand. What happened was a, a, a Jewish guy took me under his wing and taught me the antique business. And he knew that I was still a Nazi. I had a big swastika on my neck. And and uh, he wasn't like a, a religious Jewish guy, but he was definitely Jewish. And he, uh, one day he was giving me the pep talk because I used to always say how stupid I was. Like it was just a thing I always said. I don't know why. You know, probably the inner self felt that way. And one day he just gave me this pep talk about how I'm the most street smartest person he's ever met. And I remember as he's talking to me, I had my Nazi boot, I had my Doc Martens, all my red laces in it. And we're in a truck driving through New Jersey. So there's not much to look at. You know, it's New Jersey. So you just kind of talk to each other. And as he kept talking to me about how street smart I was, and uh, I remember looking down at my boots and just being so embarrassed, just absolutely embarrassed. Here's this guy who is just a great, great human being in my life. And, and I still hate him, you know, and, so that was the day I kind of just came to terms with it. And when people say, you know, if racist people come and say, you know, what about this and racism and, you know, ain't you proud to be white and all this stuff. And I know that where that pride com- comes from is not really, it's really not a pride. It's more of a, we hate other people because of, well, God consistently, a higher power came into my life and it consistently kept proving that belief wrong to me. He kept putting people in my life at the wrong and the right times and saying, Frank, judge now. Like, you're the biggest screw-up I got going on this earth. And I, I was. I was a criminal. I was a thug. I was a liar. I was 
all that stuff. And, uh, and so God finally slapped me for the last time upside the head. Frank Mink, who uh, wrote the autobiography of a reformed skinhead. Tanya Covington, did you want to comment? Um, yeah, one of the things that I that I um, think think about, and uh, that John, I think, and, and I agree on, is that um, violence begets more violence. And um, years ago, I began doing a little bit of a study um, about. Uh, Ku Klux Klan members and skinheads and sort of trying to figure out also what makes them, what is it that they have in, have in common. And one thing that I found overwhelmingly, um, and it's also uh, true of three-fourths of the people in prison, is that they've all experienced abuse um, of some kind in their childhood. Um, you know, either uh, sexual, mental, physical, some sort of abuse. And I feel like because of that abuse, that makes them um, a little more predisposed to violence. Um, we have all kinds of, of statistics and research and, you know, hundreds of, of universities and people doing uh, information, but we don't use it. Um, I also have a public health background, and one of the things that we always talk about in public health is evidence-based um, facts. And if we have evidence that shows that we have a whole group of violent people who experience violence um, in their childhood, and this is not every single one of them, but the majority of them, then that also says that that's another part of society that we really need to be working mm -hmm. on. Yeah. It sort of suggests mm -hmm. John's broader approach to the culture of violence and all the things yes. that uh, you know, some of which feed directly into this symptom, right, mm -hmm. further down. Yeah. You're saying they um, abused, suffered violence. They were trained to be racist, mm -hmm. which means they were not loved. Mm -hmm. They were not loved children. That's right. And that's just a recipe for disaster. But that's like normal now as mm -hmm. the families and the, the churches are collapsing, things like that. What was the other thing, though, that they were looking for, and you hear it in him, and it's with people in the military, identity mm -hmm. and community. Yes. Now, that would well, that's, happen. That's, that's, that, that's the draw of gangs, you know, kind of universally. The, yes. But around the world, like in Latin America, in the poorest places, they have base communities. You're loved. You're mm -hmm. somebody. You have nothing, but... You have community, and and you have a, and so yes. they're involved in movements. We're losing that, and um, we have to help let everybody, especially young white men who can be so dangerous, um, know that they're somebody, and that, that to be nonviolent is to be a strong and a human being, and that we need to create communities. But I think that can affect everybody, and that as things get worse. We need uh, small communities, affinity groups of nonviolence. And, and the, if, as people leave the churches, which would in the old days might have been your community, we need to form small grassroots communities to support one another as the, as the economy and the wars and the environment get worse mm -hmm. to support us. And that should be the new norm. We're all going to have to have base communities well, around and, the world. Now. And I know these have become cliches over the years, um, even political sayings. But you know, I am somebody, Jesse mm -hmm. Jackson, or it takes yeah. a village to you know raise a kid. Mm -hmm. And Absolutely. you know, because as you were describing that, I'm thinking, well, who's going to pick up that uh, Frank Mink from falling through the cl the cracks if his 
uh, nuclear family's not going to be able to do it. You know, then it's teachers, it's coaches, it's an antique dealer who, mm-hmm. it sounds like probably 10, 15 years down the road for Frank, sees him and makes a statement about him that helps him reflect on his choices. Yes. I guess we all have to be alert to that. That's a lot of hard work. It is. It <laughs> I mean, is. It's, it's hard time enough being consuming. human by ourselves. That's but. right. <laughs> that's right. But I think that's one of the things that we need um, again to to bring back is that we're all, you know, we're all in a society. So we all have a part to play. And it's time for us to step up and do that. And if we don't, we know what the consequences are. Um, and I don't think that's going to, you know, it's just not going to bring about a world that we want to live in. Mm-hmm. So um, we've all got to have a part in making it, you know, turning this into the world we want to live in. More with mediator Tanya Covington, priest and activist John Deere, and another excerpt from our interview with former white supremacist Frank Mink from 2010 when he wrote the book, The Autobiography of a Recovering Skinhead. All when Peace Talks Radio continues after this break. This is Peace Talks Radio, the only radio series totally devoted to the study of peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution throughout history and in our lives today. I'm series producer and co-founder Paul Ingalls. Our topic today is broadly how to challenge hate speech. And to challenge it, it seems that we have to understand it. KUNM's Elaine Baumgartel did an interview in 2010 with former white supremacist Frank Mink, who reformed himself after years in that movement and wrote a book entitled The Autobiography of a Recovering Skinhead. He has since been on the lecture circuit sharing his ideas about tolerance and compassion, including telling Elaine what he's seen as the best way to bring people of different ethnicities together. So what works? What works is when you get, you know, just use it as an example, you get groups of males of all different races. You get them in a room and you say, who here's dealt with their family in alcoholism or addiction? And, you know, you, you take these little surveys, and I'm going to tell you right now that a black guy and a white guy whose father, no matter which father was, drank too many 40 ounces or drank too much scotch, that kid knows that pain of my dad's going to break a promise, he's not going to come home tonight. That's true diversity. We Us dealing with the same thing in our lives. You know, whose mother's dealt with uh, breast cancer? You know, who knows that pain? Pain is what brings people together. You know, if I'm out somewhere and I just broke up with my girlfriend and I want to woe is me and all my friends are like, oh, you know, forget her, you know. But one, a guy who maybe not even the same color says, I'm going through the same thing. I'm going to talk to that guy because I want to know what he's doing to stop feeling the same pain that I'm feeling. 
that's true diversity. And then the second thing you hear from people, and you hear this a lot from from white people, is when are they going to give up on the slavery thing? I wasn't even here then. I, my family wasn't even here then. Well, I like to say it's it's not so much slavery as it was like the 50s and the 60s when we were spraying fire hoses at people and dogs on each other. And and you might not have had nothing to do with that, but until that, and this is sad to say, until that generations die out that went through that, there's still going to be this uh, tussle a little. Um, and, and hopefully we're going to get by that and get through it and... and you know, people can say, hey, we were wrong in this part. And, uh, you know, like where I went to school, you know, black kids used to beat us up all the time because we were, I went to an almost all black school. And until, and I finally one day got to run into a guy I went to school with. And he he's like, yeah, you know, because I was telling him, I was like, man, I used to get my butt whooped all the time. And he's like, yeah, I know. He's like, you know, we all did it. I'm sorry, you know. And so until there's dialogue, that's when you're going to start really having some some closure on things and and move forward. So I think when you start looking at it as individuals in these groups, you'll start to be able to fix the problem. If we lump everyone together, we're never going to fix anything. And that's, you know, just like people like me that were coming out of the movement or even in the movement, you had to deal with me as an individual um, and not just shun the whole group off. Now, are you, am I, are you gonna invite them over for Thanksgiving Day dinner? I, you know, I don't think so, but, uh, they're people and when you look at the skinheads and the neo-nazi groups and some of the militia groups you just kind of want to lump them all together but you get to know them and you start to see that some of them want to be good parents and you know you you might find a common ground which later on might open a door because uh you know even in my book it doesn't you can't just solve racism it's it's going to be here forever there's always going to be the us them always there's, if there was a pill that it, someone can invent, they'd be a billionaire than racism. But it's not, you know. I mean, look at in Africa because they're a little different tone. There's going to be racism all over the world. Uh, what you, what it is, is how you deal with each other as human beings and individuals, no matter what people's beliefs are. So as, as Frank Mink uh, began to be invited on the tolerance lecture circuit, Tanya, he found that diversity training that focused on history lessons of other ethnicities didn't seem to help. And Elaine asked him, you know, what did seem to work? What, what's uh, your reaction to what Frank was saying? Um, the most important thing, and it's certainly something that, that um, I talk about all the time, is that when we sit down and talk to each other, we always, always find out that we have far more in common than we do different. But we don't know that because we don't talk to each other. More importantly, we don't listen to each other. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the best ways of, of being able to conquer racism is just to sit down and talk to each to each other and listen to each other, find what it is that we have in common, and then build on it from there. Well, John and Tanya, I, I was posting somewhat generically on Facebook after the 2016 election, encouraging dialogue between the political sides. You know, And one of my buddies took me to task saying, I'm not going to sit down with bigots and racists to find out why they feel the way they do. He was very indignant about that. Mm -hmm. So that's a really hard and I can Obstacle. I can say that I that I can certainly understand where that person is coming from, and I feel like if you know somebody who really is a hard hardcore bigot, that's not the person to start with, because first of all, they're not going to be able to hear you, so you start with somebody else who can then get closer to them, 
Um, and especially, uh, this is one thing for, for me as an African-American, um, I you say a lot of times to people, there are places um, that I feel like I can't go or people that I feel like I can't, can't talk to because they can't hear what I have to say because they can't stand to look at my black skin. But somebody white who has the same message would be able to talk to them. So I feel like you find you find the ways. And if somebody doesn't want to sit down and talk to a blatant racist, I can kind of understand that because I have done that. And it's not something I want to do every day, let me tell you. Um, there are people who are so entrenched in their hatred that they literally cannot hear anything else. And they certainly can't hear somebody who is totally opposite of them. So again, you start where you can start. You talk to the to the ones who who you know who may listen, even if that means you start with talking to the choir. Um, but then you start going going further afield until you can you get to the place where you can talk to other people, or you get someone else who can talk to other people. Which is why I tell people I can't do this work alone. Mm. I have to have allies. I have to have people who can help me do it because there are places where I can't go. You know where I I won't be hurt is what I should say. John, you're certainly the most experienced veteran on the panel as far as attending street protests mm. and have been, you know, an advocate for people showing up and getting out there and being involved. What about this notion about when you're out on the streets and it's evidently one side against another, if there are counter protesters on, uh, in response to anything? What about this notion of being able to see across the street and think of those people as individuals? and not as part of the other movement or be curious about them. I mean, does anything about what Frank or Tanya say, uh, can, can it be applied when you're out there in the midst of it that will somehow help it come together or at least stop from becoming violent or too uh, confrontational somehow and more respectful of uh, points of view? Well, the events that I've been involved in throughout my life have been really nonviolent. We've done a lot of nonviolent training. We know one another. We're okay. communities of nonviolence. But you thought yeah. about that ahead of time in a sense. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So we go right. to things very centered yeah. and peaceful. And, uh, I mean, in here in New Mexico, I've been up protesting at Los Alamos. And once, a couple of years ago, a whole older group of military people, some who were involved in dropping their bomb, held a counter-protest against us. I felt so sad for them. Because they loved the atomic bomb. Yeah. And I went over and talked to them, and I was curious and felt only empathy for them. And I could tell many, many stories. I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm grateful for Tanya's comments. And I, I always think is, I mean, we're, we're all now victims of the culture of violence. And if Dr. King is right, my question is, well, how do we become people of nonviolence? How can I become more nonviolent? Because we can all become more nonviolent. How can I be more nonviolent in my family? Uh, to children and my neighbors in the workplace? How can I get my community to become more nonviolent? And how do we together work to transform the culture into the seemingly impossible utopian idea of a culture of nonviolence? I'm talking about a culture that resolves violent, uh, conflict nonviolently. It's not a utopia. This is just a methodology. And I'd like to see, and that's a question I ask people everywhere, every day, in all walks of life. How can we become more nonviolent? Where are you struggling with your violence? And what's a nonviolent option? 
toward yourself and your family and uh, toward the person you don't like. You know, how are you going to resolve this nonviolently? Because the violence isn't working, as Brian said earlier in the program. And then how do we apply that in the world? We know that where it's tried and it's organized, it works. Mm -hmm. and, it, and, and by the way, it feels better to be non, more nonviolent to yourself and others and going around hating and then you hate yourself. And Well, that's the first place. You know, it doesn't that's, work. That's the first place to practice, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, and we've yes. talked about this for 15 years on the program. I mean, that's what the program has been about is like trying to raise a consciousness where people, when they wake up in the morning, they recognize that, I'll just pick a number, but every 10 minutes they're going to have a choice about how they feel about themselves or others or what they choose to do or how they respond to the news or they respond to their upset over the news or they think about what the news is trying to do or, you know, the problems with their spouse, their kids, whatever. It's just a parade of opportunities to make peace and choose nonviolent uh, strategies. Um, so I'm all for that. <laughs> that's life. Life but, is but, a journey. I mean, journey. that's the point. That's the yeah. point you're making. Yeah. Is that you know, and we raise these particular issues, or say the uh, the racial issues that are flaring up at a certain point in history, and then we all end up coming back to this basic uh, understanding that this is a symptom of something that is bigger and is happening in our lives all day, every day, say every ten minutes. Mm -hmm. right? And I think I think that a lot has to do with. Um, the concept of community. Everybody mm -hmm. wants everybody to treat them well. Mm -hmm. Well, if you think of everybody else as important as you, then it makes it hard for you to treat somebody else badly because you know you don't want that to happen to you. So if we're all community, then that means that we all have to treat each other well um, in order to have that um, be reciprocal. And I think that in this country, more so than any other, we so bought into that that idea of the rugged individualist, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, right. um, instead of thinking um, in a more communal way. And I feel like we've got to get back to that where we realize we need each other. We yeah. cannot survive without each other. And we certainly can't make this into the kind of world we want to live in without the help of each of each other. And I think, right. um, you know, we've got to start fostering that notion and really start building that um, with kids. Well, and I would offer that the first place to start with that, too, is your own recognition of your own insularity. Yes. I mean, as adults, we can cocoon quite happily and a lot of the conveniences whether it's computers or big screen TVs or anything is really just a promotion to sort of keep you in your house mm -hmm. and I would offer that one of the best things that I can do is to go to the farmers market in Albuquerque and see all these people from all walks of life get together and cooperate and have a nice Sunday morning. And one time we were going there and we stumbled onto a protest for climate change and we just walked into it and it was different. I mean, because I, personally I've been, you know, not to a lot of protests, mm -hmm. um, but have, have been using, you know, my access to radio and broadcast as a way to be involved, right? But I think that uh, what I'm trying to say is, is that I think we have to flick that switch in our own brain sometimes to say, you know, I haven't been out in a while. I haven't had a dinner with a friend in a while. I haven't sat down and invited my racially different office mate to a meal. Mm -hmm. And that's a good starting point. Yeah. Absolutely.
I would offer um, the African concept of Mbutu. It's a community sort of a of an idea. One of the best um, examples of it was a, um, a few scientists who went to a to a village and uh, in Africa and trying to figure out um, how people relate to each other. And they saw a group of of small boys, and they had a big basket of fruit that they put under the tree. And um, they said to the little boys, we're going to have a race, and whoever gets to the basket first gets to have all the fruit. And to their surprise, what happened was all the little boys joined hands together, and they ran together to the basket of fruit. And the scientists said to them, well, why did you do that? One of you could have had all of the fruit. And they said, how could we be happy if our friends didn't also have something? So their idea is, I am because we are. And I feel like we've got to start moving back towards that. Well, that's a cool story in a lot of ways. But one is is that they were given rules, right? They said, this was the rules of the race. Mm -hmm. And they created a new set of rules, essentially. And to John's point, you know, I mean, I, I think of the culture of violence as the new the new rules, the new rules of existence mm-hmm. that are being pounded at us. But if we recognize that we don't like those rules mm-hmm. and create new rules, then, you know, maybe we have something to, to live for. Mm-hmm. John Deere, do you have any last thoughts? No, I think that uh, sums it up. I just encourage everybody listening to, um, you know, listen to Tanya's wisdom here and figure out how can we you know, reach out to one another as, and recognize that we're sisters and brothers of everybody in the whole planet. We're one with all of creation. That's the vision of nonviolence. And go deeper into nonviolence interiorly and in our, in our lives. And then get out on the streets in the nonviolent movement for justice and disarmament and for an end to racism and war and poverty and killing and nuclear weapons. It's the only way we're going to change this predicament if we stand up publicly, nonviolently, and actively together as one and demand a more nonviolent world. It won't happen unless we do that, and we need everybody. Thanks to social activist, priest, and author John Deere, also diversity trainer and mediator Tanya Covington, and earlier Brian Levin, professor of criminal justice at California State University. And Frank Mink, too, author of the autobiography of a recovering skinhead. You can hear much more from all of them at our website, peacetalksradio.com. It's also where you can go to offer your support to our nonprofit organization that produces Peace Talks Radio. That's peacetalksradio.com. Support also comes from KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Nola Daves Moses is the executive director of Good Radio Shows Incorporated. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. Suzanne Kreider is our co-founder. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. (music) 